All right, we continue our long study of dispensationalism. So we have a lot to review. Hopefully it will go relatively quick. First and foremost, before we get back to dispensationalism, because one of the main goals here for this entire series has been to discuss the implications of theological systems, right? Because whether we like it or not, when you become a Christian, you're almost first taught Believe this, believe this, don't believe this, believe this, which becomes your theological, basically, presupposition. And then that presupposition, what happens to it? It's read into the text. It becomes your hermeneutic, meaning you're no longer doing exegesis, you're doing eisegesis, and you're claiming that you're doing exegesis, but you're really not because you've learned this theological system. So you read the text in light of that theological system. And it's amazing that if you're told to believe something and then someone gives you a scripture, it's very easy for you to see that that scripture is saying what your theological system says that it says. However, 2,000 years of church history can clearly demonstrate that lots of people may not agree with what your theological system says that scripture means. So we have to be aware of the influence of theological systems. The most the most important thing we have to realize is we cannot allow our theological system to become our what? Our hermeneutical method. It cannot become our hermeneutical method. Hermeneutics should should lead to the theological system. Everyone claims that that's the case, but it's clearly not throughout church history. So we have to so we have to acknowledge whichever theological system has greatly influenced our thinking. And then when we go to the text, what do we do? We ignore that theological system. We act like it doesn't exist. We don't bring any presuppositions to the text, meaning that over and over and over again, you'll probably find yourself in conflict with what? Somebody's theological system. But you're not to be, you're not to support a team. You're to support the text. Sometimes the text goes with your team. Sometimes your text goes against your team. What should you be more worried about? The text, not team loyalty. But everyone is so concerned about team loyalty and going with what their theological system says. So we've really been trying to challenge that. And we've been using a system that is obviously very, very, very influential in the history of Christianity. And we started by looking at the history of English Bibles. We have two major English Bibles that has greatly influenced the theology of non-Catholic Christianity. And those two study Bibles are... The Geneva, which was printed when? Was it 1860 for the Geneva? No, that was 15. Yeah, okay, 1500s, right? Okay, 15, right? Geneva's in the 1500s, right? Okay. Okay, right? Okay, and what, what is it? 15, 1560. Okay, all right, all right. 1560. Remember, the Geneva is very much, what would we refer to the Geneva as? What would be another name we could call the Geneva Study Bible? The Reformation Study Bible, right? It's, it's bringing forth the Reformation idea, okay? It becomes very influential. And then the next major one is Schofield, which first is printed in 1909, and then the, the edition that I have here in my hands are, is the... 1917 edition, right? And this, and we talked about all the features of the 1917. We went through all of that. We've been walking through it systematically. Obviously, the Geneva would have carried which kind of theological framework? It would have carried a covenantal, a covenantal theology and an amillennial eschatology, right? Okay, Schofield carries a dispensational, and we carry what kind of eschatology? Premillennial, or we can just call millennialism, holding to a literal millennial kingdom. Okay, massive differences, are they not? Okay, and the Schofield becomes probably, I mean, clearly more influential than the Geneva because it sells a bazillion copies, and it, it begins to influence schools, seminaries, um, you have a certain Bible conference taking place where a certain creed was written in the 1900s that we studied that creed. Does anybody remember? The Niagara Creed, right? Okay, so the, that, that Niagara Bible conference becomes very, very influential in promoting, in a sense, Schofield's ideas. Okay, so that moves us forward. So we, we looked at all of that, and then we started working through, there's two 
kind of different trains of thought that we're following. In the Schofield Bible, we have how many dispensations? Seven dispensations. How many covenants? Eight. We are following both. We are following both systems, right? Because most of the time when you study dispensationalism, you just come to church and I'll say, here's the seven dispensations. Boom, boom, boom. Say about a little paragraph about each. Give you a little history and go, hey, you're all experts on dispensationalism. But you know, I'm not going to do things that way, right? Because they almost ignore the covenant part. But we're trying to see how he connects the covenants with the dispensations. And we've seen that there's been some correlation until... Which dispensation and which covenant? Okay, yeah, which is? Promise. promise. The dispensation of promise and the Abrahamic covenant. He has to separate them. Why does he have to separate them? A dispensation is a period of time in which what occurs? A test occurs and a massive change. All right, you cannot have a dispensation of promise and there be a test and that be the same as the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is considered to be a covenant of grace that is unconditional. So he has to separate the two. And we talked about all the implications with that and all of that. We made it all the way. Well, we're just going to go back through these really quick. Just we'll go through just to make sure everyone's on the same page here. We'll go through these really quick. So first of all, dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation to the will of God. We've already talked about that. There are seven dispensations, he believes, that are distinguished in Scripture. The first one is innocency, right? And that begins in Genesis, yes? Okay, we talked about that. Then uh, after innocency, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, gotta, I can't spend forever reviewing each one, right? But after innocency, we have conscience, right? We have the dispensation of conscience, and that's in Genesis chapter 3. Then after the dispensation of conscience, we have human government, which is uh, Genesis chapter 8. Then we have promise, which is Genesis chapter 12. Then we have law, Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. Then we have grace, and then we have kingdom. Far as dispensations are concerned, we should be starting the dispensation of grace today. Correct? As far as the covenants, what are the covenants? First was the Edenic, second, the Adamic, next, Noic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New. And where, which uh, covenant are we on today? We finished the Mosaic. No. The Palestinian, the Palestinian, the Palestinian. So for the first hour, it's Palestinian covenant. That's what we're going to focus on. And where do we have to go to find the Palestinian covenant? Oh, everyone should know this. Okay, whew, okay, good. Deuteronomy 30. All right, like that. Everyone, and remember, I cannot stress to you the importance of the Palestinian covenant, all right? The Palestinian Covenant. Some people don't refer to it as a covenant. Some people do. Because the Palestinian Covenant deals very specifically with what? Land. Okay. Remember, in theology, in church history, there is a major divide. Okay? A major division is what? God, this is very important. God promised Israel land. Some believe they failed all the covenant conditions in order to keep that land. As a result of not keeping that land, according to one entire system of Christianity, they believe what occurred. Okay, this is, all of Christianity is broken into two camps. Okay, one says Israel was promised land. Everybody got that? Israel failed all the conditions in order to keep that land. Therefore, they believe Israel lost that land and all their promises go to the church. Okay, that's an entire system. Everybody got that? The other system says Israel was promised land. Israel failed to keep the conditions. God made a new covenant. We got to make sure we stress that. 
where land is still involved. Therefore, those promises, all the promises to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled because of a new covenant. Everybody remember that new covenant? Remember, that's the difference. Some believe the new covenant is primarily for whom? Church. Others believe, well, very few, believe the new covenant is for whom? Israel. We stress the Israel aspect. And why do we stress the Israel aspect of the new covenant? Well, because the text literally says, I will make a new covenant with house of Judah and the house of Israel. I mean, I don't know how much more specific it can be. So remember, those are the two major divisions within Christendom, right? You're going to be in one of those camps. Whether Whether you know the systems, whether you can name the systems, whether you even whether you can even trace the origin of the systems, you have adopted one of these systems. And then guess what you've done? You've been interpreting the Bible based off the system. Rarely do you find a a person sitting in the pew who've spent four or five years doing exegetical study to see which system is correct. They heard a system, believed the system, and then simply tell everyone that's what the Bible says, probably without even ever doing much work to determine if that is the accurate case, right? And then if they hear something that goes against that idea, then they will do what? Just reject it and say they're wrong. And they, and they won't feel the need to go do hours and hours or years of exegetical work to prove. They'll just say you're wrong and that's just the way it works. It's the whole Christian system has got major issues there. But that's, that Christianity is divided. So the Palestinian covenant comes into play pretty significant here, right? Uh, If you start in Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 29, start in verse 1. If you're looking at the 1917 Schofield Bible, you'll see that he has a heading here underneath Deuteronomy 29. And what is that heading? It says the Palestinian Covenant. Everybody see that? And underneath that it has, number one, well, using the 1917. No. Introductory words. Okay, is that not in yours? Okay. Okay, well, in this edition, which is the anniversary edition, is the introductory words. All right? And then it begins, just so that we can read here, right? Deuteronomy 29, starting at verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel and the land I just I just want you to start seeing the land concept right land that's not allegorical right and the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb now wait a minute this is a different covenant right does everybody see that does that not seem to distinguish this as a separate covenant And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive and eyes to see and ease to hear unto this day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. You have not, you have not eaten bread, neither have you drunk wine or strong drink, that you might know that I am the Lord your God. All right? And when you came into this place, Shion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us and unto battle and we smote them and we took their land. Okay, you're seeing the land. So here he's starting to begin to establish. I would like to read the entire chapter, but he's beginning to establish this covenant. Land is obviously starting to come into play, right? Then if you go to chapter 30, right? Go to chapter 30. If you're again using the Schofield, what is the chapter heading you have in your editions of Schofield for those who have one today? Okay, well, mine says the sixth or Palestinian covenant, the covenant declared. 
the covenant declared, all right? Chapter 29 is the introductory words. Chapter 30 is it being declared. Okay. All right, gotcha. All right, but chapter 30, then we read these words, verse 1. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Now we could get into a, well, a whole discussion about that, but we will not currently. That the Lord uh, thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Now this is very important because this seems to be speaking of what kind of event happening here in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, A restoration. Right? And, and not only a restoration, he's going to do what? Bring them back, right? And look at verse 4. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven from thence, will the Lord thy God gather thee from thence? Will he fetch thee? And the Lord thy God will bring, this is a key verse, will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possess, and thou shalt possess it and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. So this seems to be a promise of what? Some kind of return and getting the land. The land is mentioned again. Now, whenever we see the land mentioned here, just as we were reading in 29, there's only one land. And how do we interpret the land? You'd have to interpret literal because that's how you interpret all the other usage of land. All right. Now at the bottom of the page, on page 250 of Schofield's 1917, this is where he's going to lay out all the elements of the Palestinian covenant. Now, if it was up to me, I would read all the 29, all of 30, and we would just take it all apart, but he's going to break it down for us. So you ready? Here's what he says. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise. Stop right here. Very important. This covenant now goes back to what kind of a covenant? The covenant of promise was what kind of covenant? Unconditional. This is a conditional. This is a conditional covenant. This is a condition. It lays down the conditions. Right? Okay, everybody got that? It is important to see that the nation, this is very important. Now listen to carefully what Schofield's about to say. It is important to see that the nation has never as yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. Now, according to Schofield, what has never occurred, this was true in 1917, it's true in 2023. They never possessed all the land, ever. Now that gives you only two options at that point as a good Bible student. Well, maybe more than two. God just straight up lied. Okay, that's, a, that's an option. Some people could say, some, some could argue that. Hey, God just lied to him. He said, if you're going to give him the land, they were going to give the land. Or all the possessing of the land was conditional. They failed the condition, therefore they never get the land. Right? Well, that, the only problem with that is part of the land promise is found under which covenant? No, well, bef- before the Abrahamic. And if the Abrahamic is an unconditional covenant, <laughs> you, or you can say God's like, well, you know, you guys stink, so I'm going to give it to someone else. And it supposedly gives it to us. But those who believe that the land promises come to us, what do they do with the land? It's not literal. Israel's not literal. Israel, land is not literal. It, Comes the major problem. Do I? Well, yeah, you absolutely destroy God's promises. Exactly. But they've never had it. Everyone can agree. Anyone's ever been to Israel? No, they do not have the land. Okay. They don't even have control of the holy sites in the city itself, right? They don't even have, they don't even have access to the Temple Mount, 
right? Because there's a mosque there. They can only go there at certain times. That's why some Jewish men will disguise themselves to be able to go up and try to pray on the Temple Mount because they don't have anything, (laughs) really, they don't. So they don't have it. We can all agree with that. Now they give us some scriptures here. Um, Let's let's just look at them relatively quick. Go to Genesis 15, 18. Just because he does offer some cross-references here, it could could sidetrack us here and make this go longer than it should, but it's probably important. Genesis 15, 18. Tell me what you find when you get to Genesis 15, 18. These are the cross-references he provides. How beneficial they are, you can tell. All right, here we go. Genesis 15, 18. And the same day the Lord made a... Covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Everyone, you may want to circle that. This land, everybody see it? Right? From the river of Egypt unto the great river of, or the great river, the river Euphrates. Right? You see that? Now, why does Schofield want you to note that verse? Yeah, he's trying to let you see the actual kind of all the land that this encompasses. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you can look. Yeah, you can look at a map. You can see that's a large portion of the Middle East. <laughs> it's huge, right? They haven't had it. I want to make sure everybody says they have not had it ever. Right? Now, now some will try to say in Joshua, it seems to imply that they have the land. But remember, even if you even, I don't even want to have to have that argument because I can say, fine, they had it. I know they don't keep it very long. And I know this, if there is a promise of land in the new covenant, then all that argument is mute at that point. But they want to give us another measurement. Go to Numbers chapter 34. Numbers chapter 34. Right. If you look at Numbers 34, can you, I I don't want to read all of this. Does it kind of give lots of borders and measurements? Look at uh, verse 1, Numbers 34, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land of Canaan, just, I'm trying to make you guys stress the word land is what I'm really trying to do, okay? The word land, land, okay? I want to make sure you get that word down, all right? The land of Canaan, this is the, Land, thank you. Okay, I'm trying to get you out of, I'm getting, trying to get you out to read that word out loud. The land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coast thereof. And then does it start breaking it all down? I mean, it gives you the borders. Do you see all of that? I mean, come on, people. That's got to be literal land. There's no way to get around that. I mean, he takes how many verses to do that? Go all the way down to verse 12, and the border shall go down to Jordan, and the goings out of it shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with the coast thereof round about. And Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is The land, okay, thank you, Robert. (laughs) Nobody else wants to participate. This is the land which you shall inherit by the lot which the Lord commanded to give unto the nine tribes and to the half tribe, right? Do you see that? Land, land, land. I mean, does it lay it out like very specific? It gives borders, right? Mountains, rivers. I mean, like how much more do you need? Like, I don't understand how that could even be an issue, but it's an issue in modern, well, which has been within Christianity. I can understand in the early church why. Everybody can understand why the early church would have had a problem, right? Israel didn't exist. So they were like, this doesn't work. So they had to come up with a theory. And the best theory they could come up with is they failed, they lost it, Who gets it? Us. But then they were like, huh, you only have a couple of options, right? Then the church goes and marches under an army to take land. 
right? That, that, that's, it. that's one option. Or option two, the land promises are not literal and they come to the church in a spiritual allegorical way. And somebody, obviously people start at some point in church history said, no, 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 no. It, it has to be literal. It has to be literal. And, it were, and to me, whenever people want to argue about dispensationalism, there are elements of it that you can mock or you can possibly not approve of. This is where it really comes down to, what do you do with this? And, well, some people decided that these promises were actually literal, all right? Now, I'm going to go back to what Schofield had to say. I'm going to read that again because it's such an important part. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise. It is important to see that the nation has never yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. And in what two scriptures does he give to prove that? Genesis 15, 18 and Numbers 34, 1 through 12. Why does he give those scriptures? Because he's telling anyone, go look on a map and t- see how much land that is. And you know, and clearly in 1917, they didn't have it. We know they didn't have it in 1917. We clearly know they didn't have it th- they, even in 1948 or 60, or seven. In fact, they're always losing land. Yeah. Right? And even if we go back to the Old Testament, right? The Palestinian covenant is in, guess how many parts? Seven. Because Schofield, do what? Oh, good. You have the seven. All right. Because uh, the seven, he loves sevens, does he not? He loves to break things down into seven parts. So we need to understand the seven parts of the Palestinian covenant. That's what we're going to attempt to do in the next 20-something minutes. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. Number one, the first part of the Palestinian covenant is, everybody ready? Dispersion for disobedience. Dispersion for disobedience. Right now, if you look at, he wants us, I'm going to get, have us look at a number of scriptures here. He wants us to look at verse one of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, verse one. Do, do you see a possible discussion of dispersion for disobedience in verse one of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy? And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee. Everybody see that? Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. Everybody see that? All right. That's dispersion for disobedience. Everybody see that? He's talking about them being driven where? Among the other nations, dispersed from the land. Okay, everybody see that? Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Look at verses 63 through 68. Everybody there? Deuteronomy 28, starting at verse 63. In fact, guess what the heading he puts above this? Worldwide dispersion. Why is there going to be worldwide dispersion? We'll go back to what's the first point of the uh, Palestinian covenant? Dispersion for disobedience. So, verse 63, And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth, even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shall thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but the Lord shall give thee their 
a trembling heart and a failing of eyes and sorrow of mine. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were uh, even? And at evening thou shalt say, Would God it were morning? For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And the Lord shall bring thee into where again? Egypt again, with ships by the way, whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again. Um, and there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Right, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? All right? Because once again, this is very important. Under the Mosaic Covenant and under the dispensation of law. We've already talked about these, right? That was the last ones we talked about. What is going to happen under the Mosaic Covenant and what is under going to happen under the dispensation of law? Perpetual sin and failure, right? Because that's all that can happen under law, right? No one can keep the law. And no one will ever keep the law, saved or unsaved. So they're, gonna, they're going to fail. And as a result of their failing, what's going to happen under the Palestinian covenant? Dispersion. Everybody see that? Okay. Here we go. That's number one. Dispersion for disobedience. Number two. The future repentance of Israel while in the dispersion. There's going to be a future repentance. He wants you to see Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. What do you read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2? Okay. And and, uh, so he's going to drive thee. And shall return unto the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I commanded thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy heart. So, that seems to speak of some kind of repentance. Yes? All right. Now, we could... Right. But they're saying it's a, it's, a, it's a point to a time of repentance. Right? Now, he doesn't go into any more look at it. And the reason he's not going to add more scriptures here is he's going he's gonna to talk more in, in the future and, and the other points coming up here. You'll see it will make sense before it's over. Right? So what's the number one point of the Palestinian covenant? Dispersion for disobedience. Number two, a future repentance of Israel while in the dispersion. All right? Number three, and if you think about it, if you think about it, if Israel has never really possessed the land, then they've been basically in a perpetual state of dispersion. And they still don't have the land, so therefore they're still in a state of dispersion. So whatever future repentance, you would have to argue, has occurred. Especially if you read what that's supposed to look like, that they're all going to obey God with all their heart. Clearly, that's something that has never occurred. It's never even occurred within the church. All right? Number three. Here's the third part. The return of the Lord. Look at verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Everybody see it? Then, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and will return. Who will return? The Lord God will return. And gather thee from all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. The return of the Lord seems to be promised in verse 3. Now, wait a minute. What is that going to happen? Now, if you put, now listen, if you put this repentance, and you put this regathering at the Lord's return, then that can only put it where if you start thinking about it from a biblical timeline. Where, where can all of this then occur? I mean, where else do you put it, right? Hasn't, God hasn't, Christ hasn't come back, yes? All right, so if he comes back, the only other place to put it would be Revelation 19, right? 
He didn't have this. Yeah. So, so clearly that didn't happen. Yeah, and they didn't, yeah, they didn't repent. So then in 19, what happens in Revelation 19? Y'all can look, it's open book. What happens in Revelation 19? Something pretty big happens in Revelation 19. It's kind of a pretty big. That's not New Jerusalem in Revelation 19, is it? Something really, really, really pretty violent happens. Okay, all right. If y'all don't know Revelation 19, it's probably a good time to become very familiar with it. Doesn't someone on a horse come back with some kind of a sword and I think some pretty serious something happens or am I got the wrong chapter? Okay. All right. All right. Okay. In fact, I think I know, I think I know what's here. All right. And I saw heaven open verse 1911, a white horse and that that set upon it was called faithful and true and righteousness. And he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame, a fire and his head were many crowns. He had many and he had a name written that, that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed with linen, uh, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the... He should smite the nations. Very important to see, right? And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And people start dying by the large numbers, do they not? They're slaughtered. Okay, now after everyone is slaughtered in chapter 19, what happens in chapter 20? Oh, come on, everyone should know Revelation 19 and 20, everyone. Okay, do I? Sin is bound, and I, something is established for how long? A thousand years. Okay, well, if they're going to be, get, if they're going to be restored and they're going to be get the land and it somehow returns when he comes back, well, then where else do you put it? He comes back, who does he destroy? All the nations. He destroys the nations. Satan is bound for a thousand years. What happens during that thousand years? Well, well you, look, the only thing you can put there is all the promises to Israel have to be fulfilled. That thousand years would be for whom? For Israel, for it to be fulfilled. That's the basic argument. That's the basic outline. Now, again, there's an entire world of Christianity that rejects that outright. So let's go back to the parts of the covenant. Number one, what's the first part of the Palestinian covenant? Dispersion for disobedience. Number two, future repentance. Number three, the return of the Lord. Everybody see that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will. We're having a hard time with this word, it appears. No, return, return. That's the whole point of the third point of the this thing. The return of the Lord. Let's read it again. Deuteronomy 33. This is open book. Everyone can use their Bibles, okay? Then the Lord thy God will turn captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the... What happens in Revelation 19? I told you to... When I tried to get you to stress the word. The destroy of the nations. Nations. Remember the nations are being slaughtered? Okay. Whether the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Right. See the possible correlation? Right now, he's not done giving us scripture. Go to Amos chapter nine. Hopefully, we'll have a better success with this one. Amos chapter nine, minor prophet. Amos chapter nine. Amos chapter nine. Amos chapter 9. All right. Now, if you look at the Schofield Bible, right, his heading for Amos chapter 9 is 
the final prophecy of dispersion. Interesting, okay? Now here, he wants us to look at verses 9 through 14. Amos chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. Amos chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. I was, I'm going to have you, I'll just read it. I know there's lots of scripture we're reading, but that's okay. Amos chapter 9, verse 9. What does he say? Oh, we'll start verse 8. We'll go with verse 8 for context. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saying that I will not, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He's not going to utterly destroy them. For lo, I will command and I will... Sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Okay, then, guess what he has as a, 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 a heading right here. Future kingdom blessing the Lord's return, and the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy. Okay? In that day, what day? Okay, we have, we saw, there's a day coming, right? I will raise up the, the tabernacle of David. Now, what is that tabernacle? What could the tabernacle be referencing? Possibly the temple, possibly, right? Then we get into lots of issues here. This is where lots of amillennialists would have some major problems, right? That is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called, uh, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Then look at verse uh, 13 and 14. Right? Behold, the days come. Right? Now, there, there's some promise here. What's going to happen? That the plowman should overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again, verse 14, the captivity of my people of Israel and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Has that ever been fulfilled? No, not even close. That has not ever been close. Now, going to the outline of the Palestinian covenant, you're getting, you're, oh, there's only a couple of places where this could occur, right? Because remember the way, the, the number one is dispersion for disobedience. Is that dispersion still going on? We would say it has to be, right? Number two, the future repentance of Israel. Based off the way that repentance is described, has that ever occurred? No. Then number three is, the return of the Lord, right? The return of the Lord. And, and Deuteronomy 33. Everybody remember Deuteronomy 33? Right? The, right? the return of the Lord. Has that occurred yet? All right. Some say it occurred when? When do some say the Lord returned? Seventy A.D. Seventy A.D. Some say that. That's the, which, which the theological system says Christ returned then? Preterist, right? They returned in 70 AD. Most reject preterism, right? Most reject it, okay? So we reject that. Others say he will come back, but it will have nothing to do with what? Israel or land. He's going to deal with the church. Others say, no, he's got to come back. And when he comes back, he has to establish a millennial reign to fulfill all the promises to Israel. Others believe the millennial reign happens when? We're in it right now. That's all millennialism, right? We're in the millennial reign now, okay? Which is the worst millennial kingdom that I've ever seen. I mean, it's trash, right? If this is the millennial kingdom, this is trash, right? I don't want it, okay? 
So, but the, the future millennial kingdom sounds like it's going to be a really good thing, right? Satan is bound. It's supposed to be like a good thing. If Satan is bound now, man, I don't, I, I don't know what's going on, okay? But, so, supposedly, we're in, uh, no, all millennialists will say that we're in the millennial kingdom now. But if you take Revelation 19.20 and any kind of literal chronological order, Christ comes back in 19... He kill, he destroys nations, and then what's built, st- established in 20? The millennial kingdom. Who's ruling and reigning? Sitting on which throne? David. There's the Davidic monarchy reestablished, right? He's ruling and reigning. And then what could happen during that thousand years? All the promises, all, all the promises given to Israel. I cannot stress that again, okay? What has to happen in the millennial kingdom if all the things that we're reading about in the Old Testament are to be fulfilled literally? That's the only place to have them fulfilled. Everyone understand? There's no other place to have them fulfilled. Were they fulfilled coming out of Babylonian captivity? No. Okay. After Babylonian captivity, there is a re- rebuilding of the temple, but then before you know it, they're right back where? They're under another country, which is by the name of Rome, right? Then 70 AD, they are... Okay, completely dispersed, wiped off the face of the earth. Come from 70 AD till 1948, they basically don't exist in any as a nation. 48, they reestablished, in a sense, the statehood of Israel, right? But what do they have? They don't have anything close. Has Israel repented? Has Christ returned? All right. So then you're kind of left with, this has got to be future somehow, right? This has got to be future. Okay, constant trip. Yeah, that's not, that doesn't sound, sound like Amos. No one's going to pluck them out of their land. They're going to be wealthy, prosperous, everyone. No, it does not sound like that. Unless you make Amos what? Allegorical. If we had a Matthew Henry commentary, I could show you exactly. He would make it about whom? The church. He would make it about the church. He would make it about the, that's what everyone, that's what everyone does. Which is always weird that churches that are extremely dispensational always recommends the Matthew Henry commentary. I'll never understand that as long as I live. I'll never understand that. The reason they recommend it is because they haven't read it. And, no, not, not, and, I, and I have no problem saying that because I've watched it happen too many times. Right? I, I can't, I, man, it's just insane. Read it, it's, it's completely different. All right, we still got a long ways to go. We got to move quickly. That's taking us much longer. They also, oh man, we got to go to, we got to look at these cross-references. They're too important. Go to Acts 15. This is very important because this is New Testament. Acts 15. I can only go as fast as you guys let me. That's, that's as fast as I can go. Acts 15. All right. Everybody there? All right. Now, um, I'm going to... Uh, what's going on in Acts 15. Council of Jerusalem, the first church council ever, right? Council of Nicaea is not really the first. They take the idea from this, all right? Council of Jerusalem, okay? Very important council, right? Very important. We could could talk all day about some of the major issues from this, but okay. Um, He wants us to look at Acts 15, 14 through 17. As soon as I get close to 14 through 17, he has a heading in here in the 1917. Says James declares the result, the outcalling of the Gentiles agrees with the promises to Israel. Now this is interesting. Schofield wants you to see that the call the outcalling of the Gentiles to come in, right, does not do what? Discontinue the promises to Israel. Schofield wants you to see that. The Gentiles coming in does not do what? Displace or replace Israel. Everybody got that? All right. Now, this is what he quotes, or this is the scripture he wants us to look at. Uh, Acts 15, starting at verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Uh, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Now he's going to quote from some prophets, right? 
Verse, uh, verse 15, after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Huh. What, what, what is he quoting? What is he quoting there? Hey, he's quoting Amos. We just read it, right? He's quoting Amos. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, uh, saith the Lord, who doth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So he's saying that the promise to Israel is not discounted or dismissed because whom is coming in? The Gentiles. He's trying to show that these two can coexist peacefully at the same time. All right? Everybody see what Schofield's trying to do there? Establish? Questions? All right, back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Here we go. Let's go through all the promises again. All right, number one, what are all the parts of the covenant? Number one, first part of the covenant? Dispersion for disobedience. Number two, future repentance of Israel while in the dispersion. Number three, Return of the Lord. The return of the Lord. Number four. Right? We, we may be able to get at least mention this one. Number four. What's number four? Restoration to the land. Restoration to the land. Now, before we, we'll, we'll wait for the next hour to start looking at all the Scriptures. All right. Okay. So let's go through these again. All right. So just make sure we have them down. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise. It is important to see that the nation has never yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. All right. And what scriptures do we have to show that they've never possessed the whole land? Genesis 15. 18 and Numbers 34, 1 through 12. You need to know that those are the passages that are given as proof text to show that they've never possessed the land, all right? The Palestinian covenant is broken down down into how many parts? Seven. The first part, dispersion for disobedience. Number two, the future repentance of Israel. Number three, the return of the Lord. That's very important, the return of the Lord. That's... I, uh, man, three may be the most important part here because if he has to return, right, then that, 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 that helps you know exactly when this has been fulfilled or not been fulfilled, right? Right, so that three is super important. Number four, restoration to the land. And we'll look up all the references for that in just a moment. All right, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we try to understand this very important covenant given to Israel, Help us see how it should be interpreted. Help us understand whether it has been fulfilled or hasn't been fulfilled. And most importantly, Lord, do not allow us to take what was given and promised to someone else and claim it as our own if that is not what we're supposed to do. Forgive us for how we've mishandled your word in the past. Help us handle it better in the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,